0: Welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Each program, we choose a new book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author about that book. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Justin McDaniel about his wonderful new book, The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk, Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand. When most people think of Buddhism, they begin to imagine a lone monk in the forest or possibly a serene rock garden. The world of ghosts, amulets, and magic are usually far from their mind. They may even feel some aversion to the notion that the meditative calm of monks from the East could have anything to do with these superstitious ideas and practices. Justin McDaniel, Associate Professor of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, challenges many of these preconceived ideas about what constitutes the substance of modern Buddhism in in Thailand. In his new book, McDaniel begins his journey of contemporary Buddhism at one of the regular funerals for our love-lorn ghosts. Despite the compelling nature of this scene, as a skilled linguist and practicing scholar monk for many years, McDaniels never imagined that he would be examining the supernatural world of ghost stories. However, after living in Thailand for several years as an academic and practitioner, he realized that the specter of modern Thai Buddhist practices and beliefs would not leave him alone. Instead of looking for Buddhism, He let Buddhists tell, show, describe, and recount what they do, chant, hold, and value. And it is this portrait of Thai Buddhism that is truly valuable in the book. McDaniel offers an in-depth analysis of biographies, hagiographies, films, statues, amulets, murals, texts, magic, chants, and photographs in the co-production of religious knowledge in Thai Buddhism. While the book is a key contribution to Thai, Theravada, and modern Buddhist studies, it is also valuable for the study of religion more generally. McDaniel's approach provides a template for what he calls the pragmatic sociological study of cultural repertoires, which examines what a particular person carries, recites, and respects, how they do something, how they say they do something, and the material and social context they do with it it. This allows us, as researchers, to unshackle our study from the expectations of certain terminology. He also problematizes a number of key categories, such as magic, cult, localization, folk, popular, syncretism, hybridity, and vernacularization, by demonstrating their limited usefulness when attempting to describe a Thai monastery, a shrine, liturgy, or ritual. These innovative moves in methodology should be motivational to others in the field more generally. Without further ado, here's my interview with Justin McDaniel. Today, we're talking to Justin McDaniel, a professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania, about his new book, The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand. Um, and while this is a, a great book in Buddhist studies, uh, it really helps us examine a lot of the categories we use in religious studies as well. So I think uh, all our listeners will be uh, will find it valuable. Um, so thank you, thank you, Justin, for talking with us.
1: Uh, thank you, uh, my pleasure.
0: Um, so before we get into the book, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, maybe how you got interested in the study of religion. Uh, maybe how you got focused on Buddhism or even Thai Buddhism. I'm from Philadelphia. Um... And, uh,
1: so I actually teach where I work. And so I, I came back to teach at the University of Pennsylvania, um, after leaving home after high school. So I teach a few blocks from where I grew, grew up. Um, and, uh, uh, my parents are, uh, have no connection to, uh, Buddhism at all, no connection to University of Pennsylvania. They're, uh, um, uh, or academia or anything like that. Uh, so I didn't grow up in a, uh, a household that was, you know, <laughs> that you wouldn't be exposed to Buddhist studies at all. Um, I grew up in a very typical Irish Catholic, um, family, uh, in Philadelphia. And, um, so I really didn't have any, uh, Asian, uh, influences at all. Um, uh, and, uh, so, uh, I didn't get anything from my, my youth, um, at all. I mean, except for a deep interest, you know, naturally growing up as a, you know, being an altar boy and things like that. And, um, you know, saints and, uh, um, relics, um, and, uh, rituals in the Catholic tradition. Um, and Catholics are, are, are deeply, uh, ritualistic. Um, and so, um, in, in good, in a good way. And, uh, um, so that maybe that had some sort of influence, I'm not sure. Um, and I, uh, I went to a Catholic college, I went to Boston College undergrad, but I graduated, um, uh, quickly. I wasn't there for very long because I, I didn't have enough money and the tuition was quite expensive. And so, um, I graduated quickly and so I moved to Thailand, uh, when I was, uh, just 21. Um, 20 going in 21. And, um, uh, I was a classics major who switched to, um, history. And I had a in- uh, very deep interest in Asia in college. Um, just because I was, you know, something I didn't know anything about. Um, and I'd been studying Latin so long. Uh, and so I wanted to, I liked languages. I wanted to do something, something different. I thought Asia might be interesting to go to. Um, I didn't have any money and, uh, <laughs> you know, being a classics major is not, you know, not very marketable. Right. Um, and I didn't really, you know, I just wanted to get away. Um, and so I, uh, I, I wanted to go to Cambodia. I have been, um, volunteering, teaching the Catholic church in the Chelsea part of Boston. Um, and most of my students were, uh, I was teaching English. Most of my students were in citizen class, ship classes like that. Um, and most of my students were Cambodian uh, refugees. Um, uh, been Many have been in the, this was in 1992. So most of the people have been, refugees have been in Boston for a few years. They weren't off the boat refugees. Um, and so I started learning a lot about Cambodia just from them um and i ended up doing research on cambodian politics and history in college and finishing doing that instead of classics um and uh i was really interested in kind of post traumatic stress and uh psychos um uh psychosomatic um blindness and other issues and but you know i couldn't get into cambodia because you know they didn't need latin teachers <laughs> i mean the you know the war was still going on uh, the civil war was still going on. Um, the UN was moving in later that year or, you know, I didn't know that, but well, I actually didn't know because I was researching. And so, um, when I wanted to go there, the UN gone in and, you know, I just didn't have any, any own skills to, to be of any assistance at all. Uh, so I volunteered, um, to go to Thailand because I figured it was next door and I didn't know anything about Thailand. Um, I actually realized that one of the kids that grew up in my neighborhood um was half Thai. I didn't know that, you know, I, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, you know, you're either, you know, Irish, black, or Chinese. I mean, you know, we don't, we didn't know any, you know, I mean, I hate to say that ignorant, but I mean, we really didn't know anything. And, um, so now I look back, I was like, wow, I had actually had a Thai friend. Um, and, uh, uh, And so, but I don't think that was any influence because he was from Philadelphia. (laughs) He just he just happened to be Thai, Um, and I didn't know that. We never talked about it. And I now I know the language his mother spoke at home to him, (laughs) which is funny. Like I always, (laughs) he would speak to his mom in the kitchen, and I, you know, for years. I just ignored it because I didn't know a word of it and, uh, I thought it was Chinese. <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> I feel terrible now, but you know, he didn't know it. I mean, he knew it obviously because he could understand his mother, but he didn't speak Thai back or he spoke English back but which is typical of, you know, people growing, you know, they, they tend to have kitchen, you know, they understand their language. They don't, they don't like to speak it. So. Um, so, you know. And no real influences at all and no connection to time and whatsoever besides this one kid in my neighborhood and <laughs> um you know not, knew nothing about buddhism i'd taken one class in college that you know it was just kind of a philosophy class on um, indian uh, mahayana buddhism um you know i thought it was interesting i, I wasn't you know, I was really political. I was really, you know, I was a punk rocker. I was, you know, I was, you know, like, I was not interested in religion. I was interested in, in, you know, death and politics and war and things like that. And, um, you know, I mean, like, teenagers stuff they into. And, and, um, uh, so, you know, I went to Thailand knowing nothing. Um, but, uh, I, I was very lucky when I got there, um, that I was sent to, what I thought was going to be terrible It was I, I, you know, I really thought I was going to be sending some beautiful rice paddies or I'd be sent into the mountains, into the forests or, you know, I thought I'd be sent to like, you know, what you see on movies, like, you know, um and I was sent to like an industrial, I call it the Toledo of, of Thailand, you know what I mean? And I like Toledo, personally. I mean, I think Toledo is a great town or like the, you know, Camden, New Jersey or something of of. of of Thailand and, and, you know, it was 1900 factories in the province. It's on the ocean. So, it, it, you know, but there was no beach. It was all polluted. Um, boss, I mean, not big town, but you know, 25,000 people, maybe a little bit more, but like not big, not small, ugly stank of fish, um, canneries, um, chemical plants, um, and I, I loved it. I just, I, I don't know what it was about that town. I just thought it was the greatest place I'd ever been. Um, I, you know, people really, I lived with two ties. One was a teacher of physics and one was a teacher of agricultural sciences. I taught an all girls high school there and they, they were just teachers in the high school. So I, you know, they were single and they had housing on campus and so you know they they they, i think they were a little upset that they got stuck with the white guy you know living in with them who didn't speak their language and everything but those were and i ended up being the best man at one guy's wedding i mean we we are we are still close friends and um although unfortunately i don't see him much anymore but um but we still talk uh on and um uh you know he's um you know, it was a great guy, and the other guy was a great guy, and and they, you know, they were funny. They were drinkers. They liked to talk, and they liked to, they had both been monks before, so we talked about that, but, you know, mostly we, like, you know, taught our classes, and then drank, and, you know, rode around on motorcycles, and they were a little older than me, about 10 years older than me, but, um, you know, we just had a great time, and the fact that they really liked to joke around and talk around, and so they were very they didn't like the fact that I didn't get their jokes, that my language wasn't good enough. And so they made me, they would only speak in Thai to me. They made me study 50 new vocabulary words every night. Um, You know, we this was before the internet. We had no phone in the house. We had no TV. And we just, language all the time, language, language, language. And um that was the best part of being in that town. No tourist would ever want to go to this town. It's terribly ugly. It stinks. And so I was forced to only speak Thai and, um, really, I loved my students and it it was just a great, great town. And, um, I spent about a year and a half or maybe a little bit more than that there. Um, you know, and I met a lot of monks, just normal everyday monks. And, um, you know, one thing about these guys is that the only thing that I really couldn't, you know, we... You know, I did, you know, I did everything they did. You know, I ate the way they ate and I went to their family homes on vacation. And, um, you know, I never went home to the States. I never went home for a visit or anything like that. And I didn't have a phone. I would go to Bangkok once every maybe three months to make a phone call, international phone call. Um, Bangkok was about two, a little over two hours away on a train, um, on a train and a couple buses to get to this phone. And, um, I mean, times have really changed I and mean, now that whole town is wired and everything, you know what I mean? You know, so, but yeah. it's amazing yeah. only 20 years ago, um, you know, how, you know, people, you know, I mean, just, you just had no way of making international calls for, you know, unless you wanted to, you know, just pay it on the leg or something. So, um, you know, so it was the only thing I didn't do that they all did was, was, um, you know, become a monk, you know what I mean? And so. I said, well, you know, that's an experience I want, too. You know, I experience all the other cultural things I I experience. So, you know, I went into the monkhood and um, I did it. I mean, I was done my my volunteer teaching time um, and uh, I would started to take classes at uh, master's classes at Jewel Longhorn University in um, Bangkok. And I would commute up to Bangkok um, uh, to do that. And then I li- lived in an apartment in Bangkok. Uh, for a few months on two. And, um, so I was getting more into Thai literature, Thai history, I was taking classes like this. Um, my language was getting, you know, you know, quite good. My re- reading and, and writing were, were, you know, I, you know, were, you know, were good. And, um, and, um, uh, so, you know, I felt like I could read everything. I felt like I could, you know speak in any situation um and so i you know i you know I thought I was ready to become a monk and um you know nice thing is that um you know you have to have a parent sponsor you have to have a sponsor and you know my parents didn't you know they couldn't they couldn't travel to age or anything like that so um uh you know my next door neighbors who happened to be a lesbian couple they they didn't have kids and they said they my sponsors because they would never have a chance to you know ordain a son, which is very gives a lot of merit it's very you know it's a very important thing to do for buddhists and um for thai buddhists um, and southeast asian buddhists in general and so they were my sponsors and i ended up ordaining at a very rural monastery on the thai cambodian i mean on the lao thai cambodian border in the area because they called the emerald triangle um, in a very only five monks, I was the fifth, four monks, you know, um Lao Abbot, he was born in Laos moved to Thailand, um, and uh um you know, Forest Monastery, you know you know, cl- you know, what I thought Thailand would be like, like, you know, low electricity, Monastery was on an island in the middle of a river in the middle of nowhere and extremely quiet. Um, you know, monkeys jumping on top of your you know, I mean, really like classic, you know, what, I don't know. And, uh, you know, turtles and, you know, big giant butterflies and lots of insects and lizards and stuff and, uh, snakes. Um, I got bit by a snake very badly then actually. And then, um, uh, so, you know, it was, it was a good experience and, and, um, you know, I learned, you know, a lot and my Lao, Um, got pretty good and I started to seriously study Lao at that time too. And I started to not study Pali, like, but I was chanting so much Pali language for liturgy that I started to get really interesting. I think it's my classics kind of training that I really wanted to know the, since Thai and Lao are monosyllabic, large, they're not monos, purely monosyllabic, but they're tonal languages, non-declined, non-conjugated languages um, Pali was this, Pali, you know, is an Indo-European language. And so, and it, you know, of course is related in, in a very distant relation to Latin. Um, and so I really got interested in that. And so, um, you know, after I was there for three years, and after that, I went home, um, I actually met my wife, um, in, in, I'd actually gone to Cambodia. I finally went to Cambodia <laughs> um and uh just as a tourist and um and the war is still going on but it wasn't too bad um i mean the war is really largely over at that point but yeah, you know, it was fine and um we traveled overland from um laos to uh belgium and uh we went through china and russia and uh, trans-siberian in the winter and uh that took us eight months i think i think eight months and um you know and then we went to we flew from belgium to ireland to visit my family who lives there and then uh and then came home and i applied to phd pro main master's programs before i started on the trip and i found out the czech republic that I'd gotten into a few places i got my you know i called my parents from there and so i started graduate i got married and then i started (laughs) graduate school um and um i really because i'm an irish citizen um i thought Um, you know, I go to, uh, I wanted to go to Oxford because they had a good program or so as, but I interviewed there and, um, it just wasn't for me. Uh, just, I didn't really, um, the professors are great. It just wasn't for me. And, um, I, you know, I didn't have any formal training in Buddhist studies. I know classes, I know, you know, and, you know, they were just, it was just research. And, you know, I, I thought I, you know, I needed to learn something. Um, I knew a lot about Thailand and I knew a lot about Laos and my languages were pretty good, but, um, you know, so I went, I ended up going to Harvard and, um, uh, did my master's and my PhD there, master's in religious studies or what they call uh, divinity school, the, um, masters of theological studies, they call it. And, um, which is like world religions and, um, I primarily studied Sanskrit, uh, and uh, then i got my phd in sanskrit um but i was only in residence for 4 years total for all my masters and phd because i went back to thailand on um uh, a few fellowships and um uh you know so i was in I, you know almost half my degree i was back in laos mostly laos this time in thailand so um uh which was good because i my poly and sanskrit were pretty solid and i could I learned how to read the old Lao and old Tom and old Lana scripts. So I did a lot of manuscript archiving. I did stuff like that. And, um, you know, I could speak the, you know, monk's language and, um, you know, I could operate pretty comfortably in mon- monasteries and, um, or, you know, if it, it didn't seem like a problem. I mean, nobody had a problem with me, I guess. And, um, uh, you know, wrote my first book. Um, I did my dissertation, I wrote my first book on uh, monastic education and manuscripts and vernacular and class and, uh, that came out in 2008 um, it's called uh, Gathering Leaves and Lifting Words And um, um, so that that was good um, I mean I really enjoyed writing that book um, it's a very um, you know it's history um, there's also some modern I mean, it goes up to the present day talks about modern Buddhist education and um but it's heavy on manuscripts and, and, uh, and things like that. And, um, so, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, I, I, you know, some people like it. I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's the <laughs> funnest book to read. Um, you know, I, so, you know, I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying is that there's a motivation to write something maybe that is a little bit more, um, accessible, you know, a little bit more readable, um, a little bit more, that um my friends in Thailand would welcome read. Um and so I'm hoping actually it's gonna be translating into Thai this the new book and um next year I hope we'll start the translation I'll work with somebody to That's you know, great. make translation. But I mean I think it's something that like I wouldn't want my first because it's not you know what I mean like I think a lot of my friends in Thailand will actually, you know, see a little bit of their you know, their religion, you know, I mean they they'll recognize themselves in this book, I hope. Um and they'll recognize their practices, and you know because most you know most as i argue my first name, you know most monks don't work with manuscripts they don't they chant from them and they but they're they're not you know like most priests aren't Greek philologists, you know like Catholic priests you know same thing most monks are you know uh they're good monks, but they they don't they're not their their aim is not to be textual scholars um so um And I mean, like most religious people in the world, you know, and so, um, uh, so, you know, I taught at the Ohio university when I came back, um, I actually got the job at Ohio university was I, I was still in Thailand. Um, I did my first job interview on the phone in Bangkok actually. And, um, and, um, so I had a job right when I got back from the field before I finished my degree and it was a great job. I loved Ohio university, just wonderful place to teach. Um, great student, just really wonderful, um, place. And then I, uh, that was only a two year position. Um, and so they didn't have a tenure track job. So I took a tenure track position at University of California Riverside, another fantastic place to teach. Um, I loved, I'd never really been to California. I'd been there, but I'd never spent any time in California before. And I, I, I adored Southern California. I just thought Los Angeles was uh or the Los Angeles area and Riverside especially were wonderful and uh um, great colleagues, really good department, um, and a uh, very good Southeast Asian program. So and it was interesting to go from a place like Ohio where I had basically no Buddhist students at all to a place that, you know, in I would teach intro intro to Buddhism and at least half of the students in a class of one hundred would be Buddhist. Um Because UCR's student population is over 50% Asian, and there was a lot of Vietnamese Buddhists, a lot of Chinese Buddhists, Korean Buddhists, some Thais in the class. I had Burmese Buddhist students, and that was great, I have to say. It was really... Um, it's not like these undergrads just because they were Buddhists knew anything about Buddhism. I mean, you know, I mean, like the average Lutheran undergrad doesn't know a lot about the history of Christianity, obviously, but, you know, um but they, you know, they had the experience of being at funerals or being at weddings. They had the, you know, the deep kind of cultural experiences that um it was so hard to communicate to people. And that's another motivation for this book that I wanted a book that students would be able to kind of you know, feel like a little bit like, you know, what it's like to be, uh, in a Buddhist country. Um, and I started a website at that time too, which is still under construction, but mostly viewable online, which is like videos, 3d panoramas, monastery walkthroughs, um, resources. It's, um, called the Thai digital monastery project. And, um, and that's kind of, it doesn't really accompany this book, but it, You know, I have about 9,000 photos on that website, a lot, tons of videos. And, you know, it basically, um, it, uh, serves as a visual kind of reference to things I'm talking about. Um, even though it was, I didn't, I actually started the website before I started this book. And so, um, uh, and, um, but they actually comp- I mean students say they complement each other um a little bit than one, so i've read both um so hoping that's the case um and so that's really about it. I'm sorry to be long winded about it I mean but it's really you know a really not interesting story <laughs> i mean you know it's a, you know i would love if there was like a you know like some I was on a mountain and I had a vision, you know, or you know I was meditating one night and i you know i you know i just it was. It's, you know, I like languages a lot and, um, I like studying them right now. I'm in second year Japanese. And so I just love studying new languages and, um. Working on my Javanese because I actually studied that for a while. I yeah, you know, I just love studying new languages and Japanese. I'm entranced by it. Just, I absolutely love it. I spend, as my wife says, it's basically like I'm having an affair with grammar, you know, <laughs> that, you know, because I, I spend all my time these days, you know, on Japanese, like five days a week in class and take an exam. It's weird to be in class undergrads again. And, um, it's fun though. Japanese is really fun. Um,
0: so the, the way you introduce the book is is basically directly derived from your experiences in Thailand uh, uh-huh. so maybe you could discuss kind of the motivation for this particular book.
1: One thing I noticed about graduate school um is that you know frustrated me a little bit, but um was that what I was learning about Buddhism largely i I didn't recognize um it's not, you know, I guess most pe- people have an interest in Buddhism and then go abroad to find it. You know, I didn't go abroad with an interest in Buddhism. I happened to, like, meet Buddhism on the way to do something else. And um, and so, you know, I, I guess maybe I didn't have some, I didn't have preconceived notions of what Buddhism was, except from, like, Kung Fu movies and things. Like, I really didn't have a whole lot of, you know, idea of what it was. And so... Um, and when I got into graduate school and I was in my first really kind of like Theravada Buddhist study, I mean, I took a class called Theravada Buddhism, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, when I, you know, was, I, I just didn't recognize it. And what I was seeing was not, and there wasn't a book that was, you know, that I could look to that was, that reminded me of, of my experiences at all. Um, and then you know, I, uh, you know, one thing in in Thailand in in my experience is that, you know, when I was a monk, I had to, you know, I had to bless buffaloes, water buffaloes. I had to bless motorcycles. You know, I performed funerals. Um, and, uh, you know, as a lay person there, I would go lots of different funerals and I would go to different chanting rituals, morning rituals and afternoon rituals. And, I was a Sanskrit tutor when I was, uh, doing my PhD. I was a Sanskrit tutor at a monastery at a monastic university. And, um, you know, I'd be part of the monastic life there. And, um, I lived right next to the amulet market, the, the big amulet market in, in Bangkok during that, that two years. And, um, um, well, no, about a year there and then the rest was in the house actually. So yeah, only about a year there uh, in that market. And, um, I lived right next to a temple. That, uh, you know, about 200 yards away, not even that far actually, um, which was a home of some that though, his, the place where he used to be a monk. And I, you know, I'd seen his image everywhere. I, you know, I would heard his, I'd even memorized his chant. I didn't know it was his chant, but as a monk, I had to memorize it, you know, and I, uh, I just didn't know anything about him. And, and, you know, it's just, but, you know, I was comfortable. I was comfortable with ghost stories. I was used to giving offerings to ghosts. I was used to, you know, chanting to protect ghosts. I was um comfortable with kind of saintly monks, but I never thought to write about it. Really, I mean, I never thought to. You know, I consider myself. I think I. I don't know if I left this in the book or not, but you know, I. You know, I'm kind of a bookish guy. You know, <laughs> I, I'm. I. You know, I'm an archivist, really, and a translator, and, um, you know, that's what I considered research and write was doing the serious textual stuff and. Um, but, you know, it just, you know, a lot of student questions, a lot of, um, you know, people ask me stuff or I, I remember I made a comment at an ARR conference, I think it was 2004 or something. And, uh, you know, somebody sent something like, oh, this never happens. And I said, well, actually it does, you know, it happens in Thailand. And they're like, well, how do you know like that? Like where can I read it? And I'm like I don't know. I just know it. You know what I mean? I've seen it, and and somebody's like somebody said you should write that down. Then you know, like and I've never really you know. And I just finally I said okay, maybe I'll start writing about these kind of overwhelming, you know,ly important characters that you know. I was struck when I started reading that no one had ever written about this in French or in German or in English, and that. Um, it was so important to ties. It was just, there's so many books written about some, that ties, so many biographies and hagiographies. There's films, you know, one, one, one documentary, but other films where he's featured in it. Um, you know, Manak is such a hugely important, I mean, I'd seen her films. I, you know, heard her stories all over the place. I mean, these were just so important figures and that I decided that, you know, maybe, you know maybe I should would be listening to what my friends in Thailand are interested in and and expose that um and that really was the motivation that it was i again i wanted I wanted to write something that my Thai friends would 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 recognize themselves my colleagues would recognize themselves my my abbot of my monastery would would under you know i mean of course he has the capacity to understand that they all you know it's not you know it's just that it's that they wouldn't be bored by it. Yes. Um, and that, you know, w- the more and more I started investing, when I decided to write about it and I really started investigating the history, it was just fascinating. And, um, I, I couldn't believe all these kind of deep historical connections. And, um, I especially was, um, got into uh, the angler trade very much. I used to actually, what is called mempat, which is play with anglers, basically, um, play with sacred things. And, um, I used to do that when I was twenty one in this town I lived in, and um because I just liked it. I traded baseball cards when I grew up, so you know I liked doing stuff like that and um you know, so I really got into the material culture of of some of those followings um and man acts followings and others um into the statues and the art. I started interviewing at a lot of uh image making factories and workshops um I started um, you know, kind of just going with people on pilgrimages, um talking to them. Um I because I was into trading amulets and collecting amulets, I would hunt amulets down and you know, I, I discovered, man, I'm not alone. There's lots of very smart, very interesting, you know, Thai women and men that are doing this too. Um and and I would you know, I remember when I was researching manuscripts I would have great conversation with the nuns and, and novices, um you know, about this stuff, about, you know, ghosts and saints, but rarely good conversations about, I mean, about manuscripts. And um that when I started telling people in Thailand, whether it be, you know, a shopkeeper or a senior scholar monk or, you know, an amulet trader or a professor or whatever, what I was doing, they were so excited to talk to me. They were so happy that I was researching this. Um, and, you know, it, that, their excitement got me excited, I guess. Um, and, uh, also my students, when I started bringing back photos from the field and I started, you know, teaching, you know, Buddhist, intro to Buddhism and, and Buddhist literature with my undergraduate courses. And I started bringing in some of this, you know, vernacular material and this kind of, um, ghost material and the supernatural. The students really, you know, they, they, they loved it and they, 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 I love the debates in class, you know, versus we would have, you know, well, how can a religion promote non-attachment and promote, you know, compassion and promote non-self, but at the same time, you know, have all these ghost stories and attachments to ghosts and such an emotional stories about them. And how can they promote, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas of, um you know, non-attachment to the material world or the world material world is illusionary, but trading amulets and bow down with statues and perform up these rituals. And, and, you know, classically, people generally are interested in, in the States, especially, you know, really, they're sort of, you know, crypto existentialists or hippies or, you know, skateboarders and, you know, they weren't kind of a Unitarian type of Buddhism I generally found like stripped away of all ritual and just being ideas and just being kind of lofty reflections on the nature of being. And, um, you know, I got really great debates with them when I brought them out of the clouds in a sense, down to a ghost ritual and said, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate your Buddhism, in the sense, of your idea of Buddhism with, with this reality of Buddhism? And are they really that separate? Do, you know, and, and that's, I don't want to, I didn't want my book, and I don't believe either that these are completely different ways of approaching religion, that there's a an nirvana and a religion centered on nirvana and then one of the people, or there's a folk religion versus a scholarly religion. I hate those binaries because they never work on the ground. I found that, um, you know in the book i mentioned you know you i would meet you know highly educated you know neuroscientists and professors who were just as into the ghost practice and ghost ritual as you know a farmer you know that you know that the royal family follows you know this and um, this is not kind of a rural leftover. This is not an animus substrate of Buddhism. This, this is Buddhism. And all of those things that we see as contradictions, perhaps, between kind of a lofty religion that promotes non-attachment and a religion that is, you know, is, you know, stuck deep in, in fear and attachment and emotions, um, and ritual, they're actually not that far apart if you dig deep enough and, and, um, you actually don't even need to dig that deep. You just need to talk to people and, and, and listen to their answers and, and take them seriously. Um and I find that a lot of approaches to Buddhism that separate kind of magic from real religion or folk religion from scholarly religion or um I find them extremely condescending and um and not not I don't witness those things on the ground. Um and so in this way, this book brought up a lot of tensions that I was seeing in class, tensions that I was seeing, you know, in my field, um, tensions that I was seeing with my with my colleagues. And um, uh, that, you know, it's interesting how strange people, uh, non-Buddhist, non-Thai Buddhists found all of these stories about ghosts and magic but how normal Thai Buddhists found them. <laughs> and I guess I wanted to write a book about, well, this is normal Buddhism. It's-
0: so uh, before we get into um, some other parts of the book, uh, maybe you could tell us the story of the love-lorn ghost and the magical monk.
1: Sure. Well, let's start with some that though. he's the magical monk, and he's really where the story starts. He was, uh, I, I argue, and I don't think I really need to argue, there's really no doubt about this, that he's the most recognized monk in the last 200 years of thailand that there is no more imaged monk there's no more kind of monk written about um than him uh and he is uh honored and loved by all classes all regions i mean he's certainly more popular in central thailand northern thailand northeastern than the south and but he's um but he's well known in the south He's got images all over the country. The largest image of any monk in the world, largest statue of any monk in the world, is of him, and it's something like ninety feet tall. Um, I mean, he's got colossal images of him all over the country. Um, I mean, he is, you know, as well known as you know Elvis or you know, you know, it's just hugely popular um, and kind of in an iconic way and um uh that you know almost the way Ben Franklin is in Philadelphia. You have a statue of Ben Franklin every three blocks or something. I mean, you know, hugely popular, you know, person in history. And um the story goes that, you know, his mother was um living uh, was a poor Lao girl Laos-speaking girl, uh, living in what is nowadays northern Thailand, probably a place called Gampang Pet. And the story goes, it's, it's hard to prove this story, and I don't think it's its quite accurate, but the story that most people believe and most people tell, and that's why it's the most important story, I think, is um that King Rama the first, the first king of the present dynasty of Thailand, King Thailand's birthday was yesterday, and he's the ninth king. So he's Rama the ninth who's living now rama i so this is in the 1770s um be- 1760s actually before he um became the king of thailand he was a general and he was fighting against the burmese in the north and um, one day he he got separated from his troops he had to go to the bathroom actually and he got lost in the forest on his horse um, and, uh, he's growing increasingly thirsty. It's very hot in this part of the country. It's very hot in all parts of the country. And, um, he's getting thirstier and thirstier and he comes across a young teenage girl and he asked her for some water. And, um, you know, she says, sure, I can give you some water. And she sees that he's an important man. He has a nice horse. He has a nice outfit, uniform. And right before she goes to give him this bowl of water, um, she takes stamens out of a lotus flower that was growing on the, in you know a ditch on the side of the path. And she puts the stamens into the water. Now, Giver had the taste of this. And I actually taste, tasted it to see what it was like. Um, it tastes awful. Uh, I mean the water is completely bitter and uh it's terrible to taste, and so he's a little surprised she did that, but he's really thirsty, so he needs to drink it so he uh, purses his lips, he drinks it very, very slowly, avoiding swallowing these stamens floating in the water, and um he hands her the bowl back and and uh and, and he goes, you know, thank you for giving me this water, young lady, but you know why you know why did you poison this water like why not poison it but why did you you know make this water so disgusting tasting uh clearly i'm an important guy and why would you do this and she goes well you're on a horse and you were so thirsty and so kind of full of you know kind of you know craving and uh that i thought you would gulp the water down you would choke and you fall off your horse and get hurt and so by doing this i made you drink slowly and you're still quenched but you're not hurt. and he's like wow that's very clever um for a young girl and it's so clever that why don't we have sex basically and um he he you know uh you know he said well i gotta get back to my troops and um but if you're pregnant um you know go, go to bangkok and um my family's really important and take my belt and show my belt and i'll raise your child well she is indeed pregnant and she's a refugee from these wars and she shows up in bangkok she has a son he grows up in Kind of central plains of Thailand, and lots of the monasteries where his family lived his mother she was a single mom, him and his mom lived where you know are kind of famous pilgrimage sites, and lots of people go there and um everybody wants to claim that some that those young men you know slept at the monastery i mean he's you know um and, uh, you know, kind of like if you go to Mississippi, every single town in Mississippi claimed that Faulkner wrote there, you know, that, you know, every single town in central Thailand claims that, you know, some of the town was somehow there. And he, he did travel a lot, say so he'd probably go a lot of places. But she finally goes to Bangkok, she gives the bell, and he, now the king, he's become the king of Thailand. he supposedly sponsors his education. He learns poly, the some that does young man, uh some that's a title means it's like a royal title but though you know this young boy though learns poly and he learns um he's trained in royal areas magical traditions and death meditation meditation on corpses i mean and um he um you know becomes this highly trained and uh, famous monk and it's said that his amulets can heal people's sickness they can protect against ghosts they can um you know uh, protect against lots of different things and uh he ends up being the poly tutor for King Rama the fourth and fifth, which are you know, the most important kings in Thai history and so he's got this kind of refugee background, this Lao background, and he's got this royal background. And those two aspects of his life really lend to his popularity because that he's seen as this kind of legitimate royal, well trained, well educated monk, but he's also loved by kind of the, you know, rural poor and that loved by, you know, Lao speaking or speaking in a Lao accent um, in Thailand, in urban Thailand is kind of, you know, sounds like country bumpkins or sounds like, you know, it sounds, um, you know, people look down on it in some ways, but it's a source of pride for a lot of people from the rural areas to speak in this accent, Um, and Lao is a separate language too, so either in a Lao type accent or in Lao, and and so he could speak to both groups, it seems, and, um, you know, uh, one foreigner saw him give a sermon and refers to this. We have a document of this. And he was photographed by, you know, a German photographer in the, you know, 1870s. And, you know, he was this hugely important monk. And then he was made abbot of of uh, the second oldest temple in, in all of Bangkok and a hugely important royal temple, um, the one I used to live down the street from. Um, and, uh, you know... Um, he Even after he died, and he died mysteriously, like, you know, every monk, famous monk who dies, like, you know about his death, and they cremate him, or they mummify him sometimes, and then they collect their bones and their ashes, but he, we don't have any of these things. It's almost like he just went into the ether, and, um, you know, I tracked down a lot of stories about that in the, in the book, and... um a lot of stuff I had to cut out of the book. A lot, because it's just there's so many so much detail you could go into and um I tried not to bog it down too much. And um he, uh, even after his death, he said that he still protects Thailand nowadays, that he protected against the French um, colonization in 1893. It said that he magically put Aimless in the river before he died and to stop the French. And so Siam was the only non-colonized country because of some that though, it's people said that they saw him floating over the city of Bangkok during the Japanese bombing in World War II and he was deflecting bombs magically. You know, he's just... He, you know, and his amulets that he made, he made probably about three thousand amulets in his life. And these first run amulets, if you can get ones, you know, one sold for two point seven five million US dollars. And it's a little clay amulet just because he made it. Um and you know, there's lots of copies made, his students amulets are really valuable. I mean he's an industry unto himself. And um lots of people owe their salaries to something though even today because of his following um books writings aimlets all these things and um but the what links him to this famous uh ghost is um that he cured her of being a ghost in a sense let me explain that so there's a young woman named nack and um nack She lived in what is nowadays Bangkok, but was at that time a kind of a rural suburb. Uh, Bangkok has grown by 14 million people since 1860. And so, um, at this time it was this kind of rural area. And nowadays it's, uh, it's southern Bangkok. And, um, she was a, you know, a farmer in the sand. She just got married. They were pregnant. Her husband were a young couple, farming couple, and her husband is conscripted into uh, the military. And he ends up getting injured, almost fatally injured in the field and knocked out and unconscious. And he she she assumes he died. Um, And she's dealing with, you know, pregnancy and she's worried about her baby and she can't, you know, she doesn't know what to do about her husband. She ends up dying in childbirth. Um, The baby dies and she dies. Um, Well, the husband is not dead he he finally comes out of his unconscious and he's cured by some that though some that he was brought to some of those main uh monasteries some that healed the soldier cured him with his magic and his um this pali chant called the jina panjara or the uh, verses on the victor's cage which is this famous chant that is associated with him um is actually from sri lanka probably but is associated with some that in Thailand is more popular in Thailand this poly chant this magical incantation and um he uh so the husband goes back home and he's going to visit his you know wife he doesn't know he didn't know she died um and he goes in his house and he sees his wife and he sees his baby and it's a wonderful thing, but they're ghosts, and he doesn't know they're ghosts and Um, There's 22 films made of this story. There's radio programs. There's lots of books. Um, They just made an animated version a couple years ago of this really great kind of action animation. But she, he lives with this ghost. He doesn't know she's a ghost. And his neighbors kind of whisper in his ear. They come and visit him while he's working in the fields. And they visit him at night. And they say, you know, your wife's a ghost. And you you really need to wake up and realize she's not, you know, real. And he's like, ah, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And, uh, in most versions of the story, anybody who kind of warns him that she's a ghost, she kills that night. So she ends up being this kind of murderous ghost. She ends up killing all these people uh, in the village. And, um, you know, the vill- villagers are getting mad now. They're like, you know, we got to stop this ghost killing us. And, um, they try to capture him, the husband, they try to like uh, have monks, you know, kind of put spells on him and kind of snap him out of it and it's not working and they try to stop her with all of these, you know, Buddhist chants and rituals and she can't be stopped. And, uh, finally they bring in some that, uh, and they're like, you know, you are like the green beret of monks. You, you're the best monk. Like if you can't solve this ghost problem, no one can. And he solves it. He chants his famous chant. He pacifies her. And in many ways he's compassionate towards her. Um, he, um, he understands her attachment. He understands her love for her husband. She doesn't want to leave her husband and he understands her, his, the husband's attachment for her, and, and he doesn't dismiss it, but, you know, he kind of says, you know, like, here it goes down, you have to say goodbyes, and, um, and supposedly he makes a amulet cut out of the bone of her forehead, you know, they dig up the actual corpse, and, um, that's been, that's like the holy grail in Thailand to find this, this forehead bone, and, um, and, uh, I mean, I'd love to find it, but no luck. Um, supposedly the royal family has it, but who knows? Um, and, um, I mean, if they have it, at least it's in safe hands, I guess. And so, um, so, uh, you know, it's a, they, they are linked. These two, this monk and this ghost are linked, um, in Thailand and, and they're linked at shrines sometimes and, um, they're beloved and they're beloved for amazingly similar ways, um, in the way that they, um, you know, are, you know, kind of, they, they have great powers, even though they're relatively normal people they're you know they're um they have um they they love well and they think well and they take care of people and you know she's depicted as a loving mother you know to her ghost baby and um and a good wife and he's depicted as kind of like this fatherly uncle like guide to you know children and and to ghosts and Um, he's often told stories about him, you know, how he protects children, you know, at night from fear of ghosts and how he um, helps drunks and, you know, he has compassion on people who are down on their luck and um you know just a wonderfully kind of evocative you know stories um and i would love it was great in the field to hear people tell these stories and it was great to watch the films about them It was great to hear people and everybody had a slightly different story everybody had a slightly different reason for liking some that though man and Manak i can you know it's interesting that people chant and offer gifts to like shrines to a murderous ghost um but why they did, and, and the, the values she she stressed, and you know she protects pregnant mothers supposedly. Now she protects soldiers in the field, so people offer her statue. Um, she's many statue, but you know one of her main shrines. Um, I used to visit a lot, and they you know offer her gifts, and um, you know, they like offer makeup and dresses, so she can dress up you know in the afterlife, and um, it's really wonderful. Um, following um and really interesting if you start tracking the history of it too and history of the first filmmakers you know the 30s who were trying to make films of her i mean she's been a part of Thai culture for 150 years and a deep part of it and um and he has too. um he was born in 1782 um, and died in probably 1876 um um we're not exactly sure of those dates. Um and I have to say, if I don't know, then no one knows because I've looked at every source possible. <laughs> you know, I really have studied this. Um and I have just a mountain of documents on this. And um it was great translating these stories and, and reading them. So um that's the story, and, and so what I did was I used these two as kind of a jumping off point to study four two groups of four things. Okay. Mike there's four chapters. The first chapter is on monks and kings, so it's kind of a chapter on what makes the ideal monk and it's the story of some that's left life, but expand it into what are the values of a monk that aren't that we might not know and and sometimes the values are attachment and loyalty and um kind of caring like fatherly like caring and nationalism is a big you know value um you know that he protected the nation and um, you know, magical power, which, you know, we might see as, well, that's not very monkly to perform magic tricks, but, you know, these aren't seen as magic tricks. It's seen as that he was protecting people and med, you know, healing people is a value. And so that's the first chapter. And the second chapter talks about texts. And so how are texts important? And I talk a lot about this signature chant, but then I talk a lot about a lot of other protective texts, uh, tattooing, um, yantra writing this kind of, um, uh, these symbols and letters and numbers that they're not really symbols but letters and numbers and certain combinations that protect you and you can tattoo and you can put on shirts and things and put on sides of buildings and cars and um, so all about text and so kind of a larger discussion about what is text and then in that talking about what is do what do we call these magical types of texts i go into arguments about is this a ta- form of tantric buddhism in southeast asia and I, I won't go into that but i deal with kind of this idea of, of southeast asian tantra a little bit um and then the third chapter is on ritual um and i look at all the various rituals around some of the domain Nak and then expand that to talk about ritual and, and magic and liturgy in general in thailand Um, and then the fourth chapter is on art and uh, material culture. And so I talk about amulets, I talk about statues, I talk about museums, um, I talk about murals, um, all, you know, I use some of the Do murals, paintings of him and statues of him in Menak as a launching point to talk about these things in general. So the book really is about Thai Buddhism in general. It's just I, I start with these two figures as kind of a way of talking about these other things um and so there's four the second set of four is i talk about what i call um you know uh, kind of you know axioms of of thai buddhist culture and and those are um, um you know what are the things that these two characters and the study of thai buddhism um reflects about thai culture in, in general and that i say that it values we see that these stories the art the liturgy the rituals that they value abundance um that they value uh, lots of objects and lots of art and lots of stories that um and and wealth and that um more more is more and um so abundance and then uh heritage heritage nationalism um is extremely important um the sense of you know um what it means to be um a Thai and what it means to be a Buddhist. And then security is a value, you know, protection against disease, protection against, you know, miscarriage, uh, protection against, you know, sickness and fire and murder and invasion. Um and then uh, the last value is graciousness. Um this idea of not putting people out about um uh welcoming people and beauty um and making somebody comfortable and making an atmosphere beautiful and that you know these temples and these cults promote this sense of graciousness and, and beauty and we often see i think buddhism as kind of a stark religion and we have this kind of idea of zen rock gardens or lonely monks in the forest and you know kind of a very cool non-ritualistic buddhism and really in thailand you don't see that you see Things are beautiful and, and gold and overflowing and um that this is what Buddhist monasteries in many ways and Buddhist stories are are promoting. Um and so that's the the gist of the book generally.
0: And um I wanna ask you something about your methodology because I think it's it could be very valuable for for any uh scholar of religion. Um and I'm gonna uh quote you here. The, in the in the introduction, you say, I emph- emphasize that objects and people co-produce knowledge. Therefore, instead of trying to find what is Buddhist about a particular person, uh, what a particular person holds, chance, or, and values, I look first to how they do something, how they say they do something, and the material and social context they do in it in. And you call the book overall a, a pragmatic sociological study of cultural repertoires. I'm wondering if you could expand on on this approach, uh, the, the method you're using and what you, you see as these cultural repertoires. Repertoire. I, exactly. Like, I
1: needed to find, in a sense, you know, I wanted to respect the contradictory nature of religious people in general, including myself. Um, I wanted to respect that people can be inconsistent, that they can change their minds several times in the course of a day over the course of their life is that, that they can hold that something that their higher ideals of non self and higher ideals of non attachment and, but at the same time be attached and not see and fall in love and and be afraid of death and not see contradictions and that we're all in a sense human beings are all kind of fractured people trying to figure things out and how do i explain that that these stories you know we we can't boil them down into kind of one essence of thai buddhism is that one meaning or that these are this school of Buddhism or that school of Buddhism, that it's not so neat when you get on the ground. It's not so neat when you shift through all these documents and hear these stories. And so this idea of a repertoire is really kind of what really fit for me and I adapt this this like this sociological kind of idea a little bit. Um, and so I found the passage where I say uh, the idea of a repertoire, and this is Silver's um, sociology works in, in Israel, um, says, has the double advantage of connoting the ready enactment and concrete performance of practical and, pra- practical and practicable options and of allowing for a measure of individual meaning and agency and mobilizing and choosing spe- a specific configuration of cultural resources while also stressing the public and publicly available nature of those resources. And that it's not uh, this uh, this approach is not something that defines the ends of action, but provides the complements, uh, the components. I'm sorry, this is, this is Swidler, on the the components are tools you to construct recurrent strategies of action. And so I go on to say that I really want to respect the agency of some of that, though the agency of men, and the agency of the monks and the nuns and the lay people that follow them and practice Thai Buddhism in general, and that um, to maintain this agency without kind of classifying, this is rural Buddhism, this is elite Buddhism, this is urban Buddhism, this is Pali Buddhism, this is Mahayana Buddhism, this is Tantric Buddhism, kind of these huge kind of categories that never work on the ground, that this kind of idea of of each person having their own personal religious repertoire that... Hold on shared cultural resources, but recombine them in a unique way in each person, um, really was helping me here. And so I say again later on that a study of repertoires has a distinct advantage of crossing boundaries of class, sect, and gender if centered on a particular place, both diachronically and synchronically. Um, and so that I'm looking for the resources, I say, that make up culture um, and how people not. Are controlled by the cultural, but but and are not looking for meaning, but they're kind of constantly making meaning um, in their daily life and constantly trying to figure it out. And that, um, if you study lots of people over kind of a course of time, you get to see what I say these those four things: racial and security heritage in, a, in abundance are shared by a lot of people but in different ways. And that I don't mean to say that these are these are the new categories of Thai Buddhism or new categories of, of Thai culture. But that there are things that most people kind of recognize and share and, and value in in very, very different ways. To do that, what the end of what you said um is that you were talking where well, I guess I was talking about the material culture of people actually, you know, hold and use. And and that's um important in that um uh, you know i want to see and i lead into that really in the fourth chapter um and the conclusion that that people kind of express their aspirations through objects and their beliefs are articulated through objects and um objects are important statues amulets, tattoos shirts um uh uh uh, holy water, in a sense, is sacred water, the sacred corpse oil, which I won't go into, and that these objects and the housing of them, the protecting of them, the decorating of them, really articulates many of these stories and these, and these values. And, and I found in the field that if you showed somebody a picture of something or you gave them an object and you asked them to talk about that, they would talk in such more kind of... um you know, interesting and detailed ways than if you just ask them a question about their beliefs or, you know, that those questions never worked. That they often end up talking about their feelings, their beliefs, their ways of looking at the world while talking about an object or in front of an object or while sharing, looking at something together. And, um you know, I think we all do that. I think that, you know, some of your best conversations probably are if you go to a museum and you're standing in front of a painting with somebody else and you end up talking about that painting, but that leads to conversations about so many other things about what you value as beauty and what you value as, as meaning making in your life. And that's what I found in the field too, that we can't dismiss the material culture of Buddhist as, oh, well, these are just, you know, things aren't important. It's beliefs that are important. Well, not, not at all. I think that the things are primary in a sense and that the only way we get at beliefs and get at values in, in many ways is by Allowing people to, to, um, don't discount the things, the actual physical things that they hold and cherish.
0: Um, well, Justin, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I appreciate that. Um, but before I let you go, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on now or a future project you have in mind.
1: Um, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book right now called um well, tentatively titled it's only about a quarter written um called Wayward Distractions and uh it's uh I have about nine different subtitles <laughs> so, but um I mean, I'm not sure what I'll do, but so far, the one that won out this week is Wayward Distractions: Things Found While Looking for Buddhism and um what it is, it's um three sections and nine chapters. These three sections that are called people, places, and things. And I look at um, I look at different figures um, in uh, Nepali, Japanese, and Thai Buddhism, um, and uh, what they can articulate. And I don't look just at monks or nuns at all. I look at like architects and um, um, uh, healers and things like this, um, and talk about what are these things that are generally outside of Buddhist studies that we, Buddhist studies has been ignoring? Um, and what are the people these, you know, kind of translators and and traders and architects, the people who are kind of you know, we walk in their buildings and we use their things every day, but we don't study them as part of Buddhism. We generally only study monks and nuns. Um, and uh, things will, I mean, places will be about I'm going to look at these kind of extra-Buddhist spaces like I've been writing on Buddhist public parks and Buddhist amusement parks um and uh Buddhist museums um these places that a lot of lay people encounter Buddhism when they're not being religious necessarily um and how are these both secular and religious places and I look at places in again India and Nepal and uh, Thailand and Laos, um, Singapore and, and Japan mostly. Um, and I've been traveling a lot to Japan lately and a lot to, um, uh, South Asia recently. And, um, uh, and I will continue to do this. This book will take a while. And, um, my Japanese, I'm starting to be able to read academic articles in Japanese very, very slowly. So it's taking me time. Um, and then, uh, things will be about, um, uh, art and uh, uh a lot of modern art i'm going to be talking a lot about uh, modern buddhist art and things uh so um it's you know it's getting there all the chapters are are mapped out most of the research is done and, you know it'll have sabbatical next year so it's hopefully it'll be done and you know it's uh, it's fun it's certainly fun to write um i'm writing a one chapter right now on birds buddhist birds and it's really great, I mean, I love it. I don't think I don't know if anybody will want to read it, but I certainly it <laughs> I mean it's really fun- bird, birds are i love birds i personally I really like birds, so this is fun for me to write about Buddhist birds, you know up until this point in my life, I just enjoy birds now I'm actually well I think
0: studying. other people will will share in your joy that,
1: well uh, I, I, I I have my doubts, but uh <laughs> but at least I'm having fun so. um and uh you know, I, I, hopefully I'll keep my job. So, um.
0: <laughs> well, well, good luck. And uh, thank you again for, for joining us. I appreciate you, you spending the time to talk to us. That was my interview with Justin McDaniel about his wonderful new book, The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk, Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand, that just came out with Columbia University Press in 2011. I highly recommend the book, especially for those interested in theory and methodology and the study of religion, and of course, Buddhist studies.